You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and today's guest is Lawrence Lemer, and this was such a wonderful and wide-ranging conversation. Lawrence is the author of nearly 20 books, as well including five New York Times bestsellers and one off-Broadway play. His new book is titled Hitchcock's Blondes, The Unforgettable Women Behind the Legendary Director's Dark Obsession. The conversation we have, I say it's wide ranging because Lawrence opens up our discussion by basically saying this month he'll be 82 years old. And the pure fact that he still is just deeply, deeply passionate about about writing and telling these stories is amazing. So we took this discussion and went all throughout his career. We broke down the various people he has talked about and written about, including Nancy and Ronald Reagan, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Johnny Carson, and so, so many others. It has, it was such a joy to get to talk to Lawrence or Larry, as he told me to call him, uh, just about the very way that he found these stories and these people and, you know, how he spends so much time researching people like the Kennedys and getting into Truman Capote and all these different people and why he picks the projects that he does, how he does the research, how he goes about interviewing people. You know, as someone who asks questions and, and seeks information as a living, it was really fun to get to interview him and you know feel like I was kind of stretching that muscle of asking the right questions and, and getting him to open up. It was just a really great conversation. He deeply understands the the process of interviewing other people. So I needed to be on my A game and I think you'll really, really love this conversation. Uh, his latest book, Hitchcock's Blondes, is about exactly what it sounds like. It is about the actresses who starred in many of Alfred Hitchcock's well-known, amazing and classic movies. And, you know, for someone who has been written about and talked about so, so much over the years, you know, it was a challenge for Larry to find a way to break down this particular person in a way that is unique and refreshing. And so taking that route of talking about the women and centering those actresses makes for just a truly, truly amazing book. I absolutely tore through this. I'm a giant cinephile, big old Hollywood nerd. So this was right up my alley. If you are looking for a book recommendation to kind of pair with this, once you get done with Hitchcock's Blondes, I have another biography that I recommend you check out. It's Jim Henson, The Biography by Brian J. Jones. It is one of my favorite biographies ever written. It is also wide ranging and just deeply, deeply researched about the life and times of the creator of The Muppets and Sesame Street and so many other things that are still so important in our daily lives today. So that is Jim Henson by Brian J. Jones. I think you'll really, really love that if you are a fan of biographies. If you want to get a hold of me, you can always reach me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com, or you can find me on TikTok, Instagram, or YouTube at Passions and Prologues. I love answering people's questions, giving book recommendations, and doing all that fun stuff there. Okay, that is all the housekeeping. I'm going to whisk you off gently into this conversation with Lawrence Lemer, author of Hitchcock's Blondes on Passions and Prologues. Hi, my name is Sarah, 
and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Okay, Larry, what is something you are super passionate about that you would like to discuss today? Well, okay. At the end of this month, I'm going to be 82 years old. Now, I can't believe that myself, okay? I mean, I don't even know anybody in growing up. Who's, who's 82 years old? And, <laughs> and I'm, still, I'm still writing. I'm, I'm doing a new book right now. I'm working as hard as ever. And uh, I, I, what is, I'm asking myself... How did this go on for so long? Mm-hmm. Part of it is I was kind of obsessed. With, I mean, I wanted to be a writer. and I was going to be a writer no matter what. At one point, my first work marriage ended in part because my wife thought that I was just a failure. I was, not, I was just, a, I wanted to do this and it wasn't going to work out. Mm-hmm. And I was, a few months later than that, I was, I was writing a book about Willie Onsold, who was a mountain climber who climbed Everest in 1963 and was the director of the Peace Corps in Nepal when I was there. And he climbed the, he was a, it was a young man. He was a guide in the Grand Tetons on the Grand Teton. And I was going to go, I felt I better climb that mountain just to, to, you know, to, if I'm going to write this book. I didn't have any money. I was living on credit cards. Mm-hmm. I couldn't afford to rent a car. I couldn't rent a taxi. And I was I was staying at a place called the uh, the Climbers Ranch, which was just a bunch of uh, bunk beds in these in these in these in this you know kind of very rudimentary thing. I didn't even know that yet because I was walking the six miles to get there, and it was pouring rain. And I thought, what am I doing? I'm 35 years old. I have nothing. I'm walking in the rain. This is just pathetic. But I did keep on going. And it's it's all about persistence. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, the difference between an amateur and a professional is persistence. You 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 only see other people's successes. You don't see other people's failures. They're hidden. And I've had as many, believe me, I've had as many failures as successes. Okay. The other thing I would learn, I know I'm at the Columbia School of Journalism, mm-hmm. and if if a young journalist there asks me what's the most important thing, and I know this sounds like sentimental and cliche, but I swear it's the truth: act honorably, act fairly to people. Mm-hmm. And in the short run, it's not going to work out, maybe, but in the long run, it'll come back to you, and that's the way you should behave. I that's I love that so much uh, for a variety of reasons. One, so my parents are in their their mid seventies, and uh, my mother was a teacher for forty years before she retired. Uh, my father was he owned an insurance agency, a, a state farm insurance agency, for the entirety of his career, about forty years. Uh, he's in his like I said, he's in his mid seventies. He still runs and plays racquetball and does all these things, and kind of the same thing that you were saying. Like two things: one, 
if I were to ask him, like, how do you keep being active at this age? And he always says the best way to keep moving is to keep moving. So that that persistence idea. But something I was always struck by having my father be a salesman for the entirety of my life was I, I got to work for him for a little bit when I was after I graduated from college. I say got to work. I, I had to. There was there were no jobs for me to to have with a communications degree. Um, but he I just was struck by that, like that kindness he showed other people. And it never felt like he was trying to sell them something. It always seemed like he just wanted to build a relationship with people and do the things like do right by them. And, and I, I think I want to kind of dig into that a little bit deeper with you because the, the books that you write, they are so often kind of breakdowns of, of people and, you know, like your, your latest book, you know, Hitchcock's Blondes, and uh, you wrote, you know, about Truman Capote and all these different people. And I, I have to imagine, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you know, doing these biographies of these very famous people, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I have to imagine creating those lasting relationships with people is pr- fairly paramount to being able to, to get access to these types of people. Is that, is that kind of how you've been able to go from, you know, from job to job, book to book, and and get this access to these people who might not otherwise be so willing to have conversations or or their families? Well, beyond that, you have to find, to anybody you talk to, you have to find some emotional connection. Mm. Even if it's a serial killer, some, 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 somewhere you've got to figure out to connect. Like we've connected already, right? That's mm-hmm. where we're having a great time. I'm not thinking about doing an interview. I'm just having a conversation with a great guy, right? That's what you have to do with an interview, okay? And the other thing, this is, we're now running interviews. The other thing about an interview is Jimmy Carter uh, gave this infamous interview to Playboy where he talked about sex in the head, okay? Mm-hmm. And once you do that, the interview was the interview was all over. He was playing the great Jimmy Carter. The, the recorder he thinks the recorder was off, and he tells this intimate th- detail about himself. So the key, so have an interview last as long as possible, because after a while, everybody's going to stop playing the character they want to be. They start being themselves. I yeah, I I totally agree with that. So I I used to um, at a previous job. The reason I, I'm doing this podcast now is because I, I used to interview authors every week for a previous company that I worked for, and it was very much the kind of by the books interviews where we would say, you know, tell us about your book and what yeah. inspired it, and it was those questions that you as an author have gotten a billion times, and you will get a million times more. And like you said, it was the longer I had a conversation with someone, you know, once it got past 15, 20, 25 minutes. They would like, whether we were in person or on the phone or over Zoom, like you and I are now, like I would, I would both physically see and just like in general, notice them, them relax and start. And I'd be like, okay, this is the good stuff. This is the actual person that, that people want to know about. And, and I guess you're talking about interviewing, like one, I was very excited to talk to you, not only because I have adored Alfred Hitchcock for, for a long, long time. I was very lucky to have uh, people in my life who introduced me to his movies when I was very, very young, but also knowing all the people that you have interviewed and, and, you know, or, you know, created these incredible books about, you know, what for you is the most exciting part when you're diving into a new project, whether it's about people who you know are no longer with us, you know, obviously Albert Hitchcock, or, you know, talking about Truman Capote or, you know, the life of Nancy and Ronald Reagan, like what is the most exciting part for you in diving into a new project like that? Well, look, I've written 19 books Mm -hmm. and it's like living 19 lives. 
that's what's exciting about it. You're totally into this world. And uh, I'm just entranced by that whole process. It's just not one thing. It's the whole thing. Uh, do I have writer's block? Well, to me, writer's block, what, what that means is uh, writing is solving problems. When you're, in, when you're writing, you're not, you finish the research and you're writing, what are you doing? You're solving problems. You're sitting down in the morning, the first problem to solve, the next problem. And a writer's block is when you're solving the wrong problem or too big a problem or the, a problem at the wrong angle. Do you think that's part of what has kept, you know, when we first started the conversation, you said, you know, you're, you're so fascinated and passionate about just like the longevity of the career that you've had. Do you think that is part of why you're still, you know, passionate about wanting to write these novels? And, you know, as you said, as you approach in your early eighties, like, do you think it is that idea of every single book you work on is going to be something entirely different? Yeah. And you've got to have this kind of, uh, Youthful passion. I mean, I'm thinking about when you say that, I'm thinking about uh, my former agent. Being an agent is very tough because it's mainly bad news. Mm. Most books don't sell. Most books that are out there don't do, don't sell them any copies. Right. So you, so you got to spend the whole day sending it. And it's very hard to be up and to be successful. You have to be genuinely enthusiastic about your projects. So my my former, she just totally burned out. But so somehow I've kept this excitement. It's not about the success or failure of each book. It's just the whole process that excites me. So how do you determine what you want your next project to be? Like for Hitchcock's Bonds, like how did you decide when you first decided that you wanted to write about someone who obviously has been written so much about, you know, over the years and decades? Like what what draws you to a specific project when you know, okay, I'm going to spend a year, 18 months, two, two years, however long it takes you to do research and, and write, you know, how do you say this is the thing I want to spend that time with? Well, on this one, this is my, this is my editor's eye. She's terrific. Uh, Michelle Howard, it's her, her idea. And uh, so, uh, and I jumped at, I thought it was a good idea. Now the book I'm working on now, now it, it, uh, Warhol's muses, Andy Warhol's uh, writers, Authors are either the most generous, too generous, too kind, or they are uh, just the most miserable, selfish SOBs. There's no, there's no, there's no mid ground. And uh, it, this Scott and uh, Scott Iman, who actually has a book coming out later this month about Charlie Chaplin, uh, he he gave me the idea for for this one. And I, again, I thought, what a great idea it was. So you know, it depends on each one. So having your editor say like, hey, you should write about Hitchcock, like what was his work something that you were previously like really interested in? Was it something that you were I mean, I don't familiar with is a lazy question because I think everyone you know who has a pulse and has seen a movie is somewhat familiar with Hitchcock's work. But was his work something that you previously adored or was it just like, oh, that would be an interesting person to to cover? No, for a person of my generation, I mean, Hitchcock was it. I mean, I knew all of his, I knew his films. And growing up, I watched Alfred Hitchcock's Presents, the, the half-hour television, which he introduced every week. And he acted like a fool sometimes. You know, he'd be in a barrel with seemingly naked. You couldn't met you. Scorsese wouldn't have done that or Spielberg. Mm -hmm. That's Hitchcock. Yeah, that is something that I feel like it doesn't exist in modern, you know, entertainment, like not only 
you know, the Hitchcock presents, I'm thinking about there's, there's this really interesting uh, on the Disney streaming tool. There's this really interesting documentary about the Imagineers and they do the same thing where they talk about like how I think, I don't know if it was the wonderful world of Disney or whatever it was like the Walt Disney used to basically host like a weekly show. And yeah, I, I, I can't imagine like having access to that and like being able to convey your interests as a, you know, for, for Hitchcock or, or Disney, like, to be able to say like, welcome into my world and have that many eyes. Like that, that had to be such a unique time to be able to know like, okay, every Sunday night I'm going to watch this thing. Like, was it appointment TV for you to, to watch Alfred Hitchcock presents or is it something you just kind of think back to? I, I, you know, we, we just devoured my, my father was a professor and my parents hated television. So, uh, we couldn't watch television. I also went to church. If I went to church and then I could watch television later in the day. And we had to watch this. This is a thing called Omnibus. So you probably didn't even know about it. Mm-hmm. It was on Sunday afternoon. Your dad will know about it. It was like the it was like intellectual television. And it was incredibly boring. And we'd have to sit there and watch that. So that's why I, my brother's a professor. In fact, I'm sitting in his house right now mm-hmm. in LA. But boy, I didn't want to become a professor, that's for sure. Yeah. And so I was, I'm the, I'm the youngest of four. I'm in my late thirties. I'm the youngest of four. And I was very lucky for a few reasons. One, speaking of Hitchcock, I, I remember my brother's best friend, he was applying to go to USC's film school. And I was in my like early teen years and he, my, my brother's best friend literally shot his own version of lamb to the slaughter, a thing I had never heard of until I watched his. And when he basically told me, he's like, you know, this is an Alfred Hitchcock story. And then it kind of introduced me to all these different, these all the different movies and everything. And I, I got to grow up being at my grandmother's house and she always had like Turner classic movies or AMC on. So I remember watching right. like Shane and the good, the bad and the ugly and all these different things like that. I normally wouldn't have otherwise been experienced, you know, it kind of seen as a kid. Do you remember the first, Hitchcock movie that you saw? You know, I can't. But just, let me just say something total aside. The best bargain in America is the Criterion Channel. Mm-hmm. $90 a year. If all these, multi, it's just incredible, all the films that are on that. But I know, but I know I don't, I don't remember which one it was. Yeah. Do you remember, like, did you have the experiences that people always talk about with Hitchcock movies? Like, were you able to go see them in theaters or was it something that you were seeing kind of after the fact, maybe on, you know, like VHS? Hey, I'm 81 years old. I went to the theater. <laughs> the streaming nonsense is new to me. <laughs> what was that experience like seeing those films in the theater? Well, that was such a, a central part of American life, going to the movie theater, right? And, and, uh, I mean, as a kid, I was born in Chicago, and we and, and we'd go to the Saturday matinee, okay? I can remember walking my father's house at the University of Chicago. We'd walk down, I can't remember the name of the street, for the theaters where you'd sit, I think it was 10 cents or a quarter or whatever, you'd sit in there with all the kids and, wa- and watching that, you know? So that, that's what it all began. It was just so exciting. And then going upstate New York, the drive-in, the drive-in, this place of wanton sex and movies. I mean, wow, movies and sex together, what's better than that? <laughs> so when you're when you're approaching a book like this about a person who, again, so much is known and written about and been shared already. Can you kind of take me through the process of of doing the research? Because you you have written books about people that are like really considered like the definitive aspect, you know, kind of 
portrayal of them, whether it's, you know, Johnny Carson or the Reagans or, or Truman Capote. Like, so to go into a progress, uh, a project like writing about Alfred Hitchcock in a way that is going to kind of cut through all the noise and get people's attention, you know, what are you looking for in your research process to come at something like this from a different angle than maybe anyone else has done before? Okay, first of all, we were talking about how authors are either too generous or mm-hmm. just the most selfish SOBs in the world. Well, in the, in the first category is Patrick McGilligan, who's written the definitive biography of Hitchcock. It's just mm-hmm. magnificent. He gave me access. He, he spent years doing the research. He interviewed all these people who are gone now. And uh, he let me have access to all of his research. Mm-hmm. And that that was an incredible beginning to this book. I mean, to, ha- to have that. And again, he only used part of it in his books. I mean, he'd get an interview, choose one thing, and, and I'd go through and find something else. So that was absolutely crucial to everything. And then that I'm writing about these women. That, had, that, that was my editor's idea. That was a new way of looking at it. And we're in this era. Look, early on, Hitchcock went to these new movie palaces in London. And who was the audience? The audience was overwhelmingly women. Beyond the women, the men, the, the men that were there were often brought there by their were their wives or lovers. Okay. So Hitchcock knew he had to he had to please uh he had to please women. He had to have characters that women would love. Well, as a writer, women buy most books. So to write about these women, that that that's going to be the, that's going to be the predominant audience. So I so I was very conscious of that. Was it challenging to find that balance between you know kind of giving the spotlight to these women that you know either starter in one or or maybe two of Hitchcock's movies? Like, was it challenging to to find that balance between spotlighting them and and also keeping a focus on Alfred Hitchcock as well, or like you know? wanting to portray him honestly but you know it, it can be kind of challenging like how did you find that balance between focusing well, on that, i mean that was the structural problem of the book okay mm-hmm. to, to, as we go on chronologically to one actress and one film after another to interweave enough about Hitch, hitchcock so in the end we have a full story of his life how do you know with a you know when you're doing so much research and i, I imagine this is another thing that you've you've learned over your entire career but like i always ask people who write you know nonfiction. how do you know when the research is done and the writing is time to, to begin like how do you know when you're finished it's redundant when i've heard this before mm-hmm. that's the so, point yeah so so and when you when you say when you've heard this before do you mean like in other in my research there's somebody's somebody said that or, gosh this is this is this we've seen this too many times mm-hmm. Is there one of your one of your your books that was truly like, you know, people say a passion project? Like, was there one that you were like, okay, this is the thing that I just I want to dive in fully, not because of the market or because of recommendations. It's entirely like kind of the they say for directors, like, you know, one for the one for your heart, you know, one for, uh, you know, one for the people. Like, was there a, a book that for you was the one that you were like, this is entirely for me. Well, Ascent, the physical and spiritual quest of Willie Unsold. I told you I was walking on that road doing that mm-hmm. book. Uh, Willie Unsold uh, climbed Everest in, in 63 by the uh, 
by the West Ridge where nobody had gone before he lost nine of his toes. The following year, I was lost with him in the jungle. He took off his he took off his shoes. You can see just that one toe. He wondered how he even could walk. Uh, he was the, one of the crucial people in the development, outward bound, that you should go out and risk your life physically. When he was a young man, he uh, he was climbing in India and this saw that this Mount Namda Devi is the biggest, it's named Bliss Giving Goddess. He was going to go back and going to get married and have a daughter and name her Namda Devi. He did. And when he was 50, he decided he wanted, he lived enough, he wanted to die. And there was an expedition back to Namda Devi where he was, he went with his beautiful young daughter, Namda Devi. And, uh, they, the family decided if he wanted to die, that was okay. They got over there. He wanted to live. They got up to a few hours of the summit, and Debbie, none Debbie got sick in the tent and died in the tent. They brought the body out. He gave a prayer to such this world of such, such fragility and beauty that even my own daughter's death is a measure of my belief and cast the body off the mountainside. And he came back and started giving this talk all over the United States about his daughter. And people thought, oh, how great he was. And people who knew him and really knew climbing thought he was depressed. Four years later, he leads it. He's a professor at uh, in, in in Washington, he leads a group of students up Mount Rainier in the way he shouldn't have done, unprepared, because that was Willie. And Avalanche came, and he was killed, and one of the students was killed. So that was the powerful emotional story I had. And his his uh, wife started cooperating with me, and after a few months, she decided she couldn't deal with this, and she wanted me not to do it. I went ahead with the cooperation of his mother and his closest friend, uh, Robert Redford, came to my place in Washington and wanted to make a movie out of it. He went to Nepal and almost died. Uh, two of the, there were two scripts that never was made. But that, even telling telling this story to you this morning, it brings it all back to me in so many ways. Yeah, that I, I was, you know, I was initially going to ask you, like, if you find it more interesting to write about people who are no longer with us or people who, you know, are still, around but i have to imagine having that that like firsthand connection with these people i imagine there's there's got to be nothing as exciting of like of getting that that firsthand access to these people i would imagine yeah well on the, on, the, on this book uh look all the the, of the actors i wrote about only mm-hmm. three and tippy hedron is in her early 90s and she's not she's no longer doing interviews okay so i interviewed tippy hedron and uh even recent Mm-hmm. Even Marie Saint, uh, how, what brilliant technique did I use to get to her? I looked up her name, name basically on the internet, her phone number, and called her. Okay, <laughs> so and so uh, and her and her uh, her publicist was not happy, but that I had done that. But what the hell? I mean, well, not, nothing wrong to do that. But she gave me a terrific interview, and she's ninety nine years old now, and she lives by herself. And the only sound I could hear was the lawnmower beneath the window on Wilshire Avenue. And, uh, you know, that, that's how, that's how I end that section of the book. Now, her daughter was not happy with me because I, she, cause I'm saying she's living alone and she thinks it makes her look like a bad daughter. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got a daughter. If, if I'm, if I'm living my, by myself when I'm 99, I'm going to, I'm going to be pretty happy about it. Now, Kim Novak, I went through her manager. And interviewed her, and the and the and it was to be about her 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 making of vertigo. That that was the subject, okay. But as part of that, 
she got involved with, with Sammy Davis Jr. during the middle of the making of that film. So, of course, I asked her about that. I finished the interview. It's Christmas Eve. And her manager gets in touch with me and says that they're going to sue me, that I'm this terrible person. I, I, uh, I, I, I lied. I cheated. I talked about what I shouldn't have talked about. And so finally I calmed her down and I said, I'll, and we agreed that I would let them, uh, I'd, I'd let her fact check everything. I'd go over all the facts with her. Mm-hmm. Well, they never got back with me. So I wondered what, what happened? What, what, what's going to happen? And I was kind of nervous, kind of nervous. I'm kind of nervous about that. Yeah. And then, Today, this morning when I woke up, there was the email from the manager saying, it's just fine. <laughs> she, liked, she liked what I wrote about her. Oh, my God. That is, I, ha- I have to imagine having so much experience, that type of stuff maybe doesn't worry you anymore. But like, as a, you know, if you were just getting started in your career, I imagine like having someone basically like, we're going to see you for what someone else said to you. And if you you print it. Is it kind of like, you know, water off a duck's back at this point where you're like, okay, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Or There's always somebody saying something like that, okay? But I was sued. In my book, The Kennedy Women, Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote about Judith Exner, who had an affair with JFK, who was was Sam Giancana, the mafia chieftain's mistress as well. And she met JFK in Las Vegas on a a, a weekend during the primaries. And... uh, she, she says in her book that she just met him there and they talked about religious philosophy. Well, I don't, that's the <laughs> first and last time in his life that JFK ever talked about religious philosophy. <laughs> anyway, uh, Peter Lawford's manager I interviewed said that, uh, said that uh, she was paid by the mob to go to Las Vegas and sleep with him. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know. How do I know which is the truth? Yeah. So I put both versions in my book. Okay, so the reader can decide what the reader thinks. Too. She she sued, she sued, and uh, she got these two low life Sirhan Sirhan, Bobby Kennedy's assassin. Yeah, it's a lawyer. This kind of low life guy, and uh, I could and, and we go to these depositions, and I could tell. She didn't like that her lawyer was such a slob. She was like an elegant dresser. So I came every, I'm, I'm a kind of sloppy guy too, but but not for this. I dress <laughs> almost everything, every, in everything but a tuxedo. And mm-hmm. I, I just come there and I, I, I didn't say a word. I just sat there with this little smile on my face, okay? Mm-hmm. Just looking at her. And the fifth day, she, 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 she takes the microphone, rips it off her head and throws it, throws it in my face and says, F you. And that was the end of the lawsuit. <laughs> I, After four hundred thousand dollars, by the way. Oh my gosh! I well, and then it's just because we've been talking about a lot of your different books. I mean, you also wrote about Mar-a-Lago, and I'm and I know there's a very angry, ornery person who was very mad at you as well, right? That the, the uh, you're looking at, you're looking at the man who's been banned for life from Mar-a-Lago. I mean, uh, of course, it ruined my life. I wake up in the morning. Why can't I go to Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> Um, can you, like, are there any, like, just moments about writing that story that, like, I, I can't even begin to start formulating a, a series of questions, but just like, you know, what made you want to write about Mar-a-Lago and, you know. Well, because I was living, I was living in Palm Beach. Mm-hmm. It, basically, it shouldn't have been called Mar-a-Lago. That was a mistake, my publishing mistake. It should have been called The Sun King, because it's basically about Trump's life in, Mar- in, in Florida yeah. and how that, that experience 
in, in Palm Beach, which didn't want him, despised him. And how he overcame that and the techniques he used, developed there, that helped him become president of the United States. That's what it was about. Mm-hmm. He, in the end, was not happy. Yeah, but is he ever happy? He doesn't seem like a happy person, you know, ever. No, but as, my, as one of my friends said who worked in the Reagan administration, Trump is the happiest, is the luckiest man that ever lived. The luckiest. Mm-hmm. You and I did what he did. We, we'd be doing this interview behind bars. <laughs> That is absolutely true. I um, so I I want to just ask like one or two more questions about you know Hitchcock's plan. And you've been very gracious okay. with your time, but you know when it is a book like this, like is there something for you when you're thinking about all of these different actresses? And obviously, like there's a bit of a through line, but writing a story like this. Is it different than writing just kind of a, a standard biography of someone? Like, were you working on creating a narrative and, and a through line through this? Like, did it feel more like writing fiction or or was it? No, it's very- not. I, I, I don't consider myself a biographer. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I think bi- traditional biography is getting kind of boring and just too much. I mean, do I want to read 900 pages about somebody? No. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm a storyteller. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be a story. And each chapter has to have a, a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a dramatic ending. So they all have it. And when I begin the book, even before, I, what I do is I always figure out the ending. And then I, then I figure what I can do to, to make the ending work. The ending of this is the 1979 AFI tribute to Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. 1,500 people in this room. He's, he's 79. He's kind of pretty much out of it. His wife has had a stroke. They just carry her and sit next to him. All these tributes, all these people coming forward saying these great things to him. He just looks down at the table, absolutely no look, no emotion at all. And then Ingrid Bergman, who's the master of ceremony, says, Hitch, Hitch, uh, uh, when we made notorious the 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 uh, the key that was the key to the wine cellar that is the, is the MacGuffin the device that that sets the, sets the story in, in uh, going. Um, uh, Cary, Cary Grant took that and kept it for 10 years and it gave him all sorts of good luck. He gave it to me. I've had it for 10 years and it gave me all this good luck. And, and now Hitch, I'm coming down there and I'm giving this key to you and I hope it gives you 10 years of good luck. So at that point, everybody stands up. She, he, he comes, she comes down in the audience. She walks toward him. She she hugs him. He doesn't like being hugged, but mm-hmm. he, I really like that. And she hugs him back. And I say that he was not just hugging her, but he was hugging life itself. Mm-hmm. And that was it. So I had to make everything work. So when the reader got to that point, they say, wow, that that's good. And and, and the and the, the reader is emotionally tugged when it comes to that point. Yeah. I, I loved this book so much. I absolutely tore through it. I, I have one last question for you. I always end every conversation by having the author who has come on give a recommendation of any kind. It can be a book. It could be a, you know, it could be a Hitchcock movie that, that you like. Just something you want to recommend to my listeners that you think more people should know about or be doing. Okay, I'm reading this new biography mm-hmm. uh, of Lou Reed. Lou Reed of Velvet Underground yeah. called King of New York. And it is fabulous. In fact, you should have him on your podcast. The, the, the book is just terrific. That's perfect. Larry, I, you've been so gracious through the time. Like I said, I was so excited to get to have this conversation. It's great. It's great fun. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. 
It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other Evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.